Good morning, boys and girls. Yeshiva, Magen David, Hanukkah Sameach. And I guess we can say Shabbat Shalom. And we might as well throw in Chodesh Tov or Mevorach, because we're going to have Rosh Chodesh, Shabbat and Sunday. Shabbat is a big day every week, but this week is extra special. It's actually very, very, very special in the sense that we're taking out three Sifret Torah. We don't often do that. One Sefer Torah for the Parashat HaShavuah, and then we have one Sefer Torah for Rosh Chodesh, and then we have another Sefer Torah for Hanukkah. That's a triple header. So we felt that to commemorate this special Shabbat of three, that we would change the Siha this morning to also bring three Sefret Torah, three human Sefret Torah, uh, and they will address us. And uh, the first rabbi that's going to come to address us is no stranger to the yeshiva. Uh, he actually, I would say in the last many years, probably is the rabbi that has had the most influence and impact on the yeshiva. Uh, not only while he was here, but amazingly enough, Rabbi Joey Haber's impact on the boys and girls of the yeshiva is still felt. That's a sign of a good man and a good teacher that he leaves a ripple effect even after he moves on, uh, his teachings and his ways are still embedded in the heads of the students. Our rabbis tell us that when Yaakov left to move on and he went to his father-in-law's house, so he left his father's house to go to his father-in-law, but you say Yaakov, so that she says, Yitziat at tzaddik makom osar roshem. That when a tzaddik leaves a place, it makes an impression. And most people learn that it leaves a vacuum. Tzaddik was there, it's power. When the tzaddik is there, it's holiness. But when he leaves, there's emptiness. But that's not what she says. She doesn't say that when the tzaddik leaves the town, he makes a vacuum. He says, actually, he does something. It makes an impression even after he left. And that's what I would say about Rabbi Joey Haber, the Yitziat Sadiq Makom, although he never left, he's still with us, but when he moved on to uh, great things which are going to benefit us in the long run and the short run, he has made a Roshim. He has made a great impression on the yeshiva, and I am certain that that Roshim is going to last for many, many years to come. It should be pointed out that I have the uh, utmost admiration for what the rabbi is doing in his work at Keshir. I think it should be pointed out as well. Uh, I know our yeshiva is very, uh, very strong on trying to get the boys and girls into the colleges of their choice. And uh, we're committed to that. And we probably have the best guidance for college in the entire country. Uh, but that being said, we also recognize the dangers. And you have to be a fool not to recognize the dangers today. I think even the biggest college people are recognizing that the campuses are uh, hostile to Jewish people and to Jewish values and to Jewish ideals. And therefore we need protection. So the rabbi created Kesher, which means connection, in order that when our boys and girls go on to college, 
they won't get lost. He keeps a connection with them and to make sure that they still are uh, attached to our values and our traditions, the Torah, the mitzvot. Without Keshet, you're jumping into a violent sea without a tube or a, uh, a floating device, which is basically you're guaranteeing uh, drowning, God forbid. Keshet is a lifesaver. And the rabbi has dedicated his life to save the children of the community that find themselves on college campuses. So he deserves a round of applause for that. And some of you might ask, Rabbi is so busy with all his responsibility as a rabbi of a congregation, how does he have time to come to the yeshiva and give us a talk? And the answer is of an old saying, that if you have something to get done, give it to a busy person. Busy people are able to multitask and get a lot of things done. Don't give it to a person that has all the time on his hand. If you give a job to a lazy person, you'll come back after the day's over and say, sorry, uh, I didn't get off the couch. Rabbi Haber is always in motion. So he's always moving, and therefore it's like the oil of Hanukkah. It's a little oil, but somehow it lasted for eight days. The little time in the day, somehow Rabbi Haber's days, if you look at his schedule, you say it cannot have been done in 24 hours. This must have been done in 80 hours, but how do you put 80 hours of work in 24 hours? He is the living Nes Hanukkah. So without any further ado, I'd like to invite the first Sefer Torah to address us this morning, Rabbi Joey Haber. Rabbi, I am incredibly humbled by that introduction. But what I also felt more than anything in that introduction is love. And, you know, there's a funny thing when you leave someplace, you don't know how you're going to feel about that place once you left. And the whole last year I was wondering, how am I going to feel about Mag and David when September comes? And the truth is, I knew, I was pretty confident that I would still love Mag and David Yeshiva. But I had no idea how much I would root for you guys inside of my heart and my soul. Every time I hear about a new teacher and what's being taught in the yeshiva, every time I hear even about a, bit, a win by the JV or the varsity, sounds like there's a lot of those these days. Every time I hear about an incredible Shabbaton or a great open house, every single one of them, I just... How many kids is inshallah coming next year? I just, there's something inside of me that always wants to sing. So I, I can't be more proud of what Mag and David Yeshiva is and where it's headed. And that's in large part because of the leadership of Rabbi Mansour. You know, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Rabbi Mansour and I, we had a really long conversation. And I can't tell you how inspired or impressed, I, I don't know who am I to be impressed, by the leadership and the confidence and the mentality that Rabbi Mansour brings to Mag and David Yeshiva. It is incredible. Every boy and girl in this room needs to know that you are in good hands. And you're led by a rabbi who understands you, understands the community, loves you, respects you, appreciates you, wants only the best for you, and has given his heart and soul. The rabbi easily could have decided that this is not something for him, but for him to jump into it 
with his love and his commitment, his dedication, is the reason why Mag and David Yeshiva is stronger than it ever was and will continue to be even stronger and stronger and pushing. He's not in the room, but I also want to, I also hear great things about what Dr. Vita is doing. Apparently he sends out more emails than Trump tweets. But also apparently he is as effective as a principal as his reputation is. And it sounds like there's an energy and a vibrancy and sounds like this week was a ton of fun. You guys did a lot of good things this week. So thank you very much for having us. And if we're talking about Sufred Torah, I want to acknowledge our colleague and someone who I worked very close with for years and I'm inspired to watch what Rabbi Elnadav has started to do in Yeshiva. And how much every single one of the students appreciate him. So boys and girls, thank you very much for having me. Rabbi Manzo said, busy person, the minute that I heard that this was a possibility, I like quickly like wiped out the whole Friday. I said, Friday, Mag and David, I cannot wait to be back. So it's really, really exciting for me to be here, to see the rabbis and the teachers and, and, and you know, some of them, many of them close friends, to see them and what the relationship that they have with you and how the yeshiva is headed really, really is. Baruch Hashem, an inspiration for the rest of the community. Okay. Most people, young people, would say that the greatest challenge to your religion, to you as a Jew, the greatest challenge is temptation. It's something, maybe some days it's your bed that's tempting, Sometimes it's something God forbid to drink or take that's tempting. Sometimes it's something to look at that's tempting. And temptation for a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old girl or boy is very much a humongous challenge and humongous test to us as religious Jews. But what I want to talk about this morning is something that I think is a greater challenge and a greater test. Because temptation, as challenging and as gripping as it is, could be overcome. We know plenty of people who didn't do so well with their desires when they were 19 and then somehow by 21 or 22 they got married and they were back to the path. But this challenge, oh here's Dr. Vita. Dr. Vito. I told him before how much we hear what an incredible job you're doing and how your, your effectiveness is as great as it matches your reputation. And then I also told him that I heard you send out more emails than Trump tweets. Apparently it's very effective because I hear from a lot of the parents that they really appreciate how much they're in the know. Sometimes they come at two in the morning, but they like it very much. Okay. But, 
Shabbat Shalom and understood and Baruch Hashem. Inshallah, there's many, many more interviews. But this challenge that we're speaking of is one that once it has you, it almost never lets go. And once you're affected by this, it's very unnatural to change. And that is a challenge, that is when your thinking is wrong. Boys in the back. When your beliefs are distorted, that usually never changes. And someone who has distorted beliefs when they're 18, in many cases those beliefs are as messed up, if not more so, when they're 45 and 50. You know, Hanukkah has a unique law. The law of Hanukkah, which I don't think we have anything else like it, is that you do the mitzvah and then you have to leave it there. Leave it there for for other people to see. There are other things that have pesumenisah, but it's usually in the action. So if I read the Megillah, when I'm done, I'm done. When I shake the Lulah, when I'm done, I'm done. When I sit in the Sukkah, I blow the Shofar, when I'm finished, I'm finished. Yet when I light the Menorah, I light it, I leave, and it has to stay in the window. Why? So that people will see. I'll tell you another unique law, that this is only to Hanukkah. That is, if someone didn't light the Menorah that night, and no one is lighting on their behalf, and they walk by in the street and they see one, they make a beracha. Shasani seen, they make a beracha. There's no other mitzvah that if you see someone else doing it, you make a beracha just by seeing it. Why is this the only one? And the answer is this. Because Hanukkah, the message of those lights, is our vision. Our perspective. And seeing those lights is about perfecting our eyesight, perfecting how we view things and how we see the world. And there's a unique way that we as Jews see life and see the world. And that's hinted in those candles. And that's why when those candles are lit, we want people to see it. So they have that perspective. We make a berachan seeing it. Because that's what we're blessing Hashem for. The blessing of having that perspective. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this Jewish perspective. And how we view things. And the beliefs we have. A couple of weeks ago on a Saturday night. I was going to go give a speech in Lakewood. My old neighborhood in Lakewood. I used to live. And before I went there, a father... Syrian man from our community called me up. He says, Rabbi, you're coming to Lakewood. We have a group of girls that in my house, post-high school girls, which is what you focus on now, girls and boys. Can you come to my house and give them a speech? I said, I really don't have time. I'm running to the other thing. I have to get there on time. I said, I can give you 15 minutes. He said, please. So I came to the house. There's like 30 girls in the house. And I said to them, girls, you need to realize how unique you are and how special you are. You're part of the Syrian Sephardic community, is nothing better. And you're in a city of Torah, the combination is so incredible. So one of the girls raises her hand and says, if that's true, 
How come no one wants to date us? So what do you answer? So as a drop thrown off, first I said, you know, everyone's different. But then I said to the girls, I said, I want you to know something how dating works. Five minutes before you find a person, you think it's never gonna happen. And then once it happens, you're like, oh, of course, it was always gonna happen. I said, I'll give you an example. I have a niece, a couple of months ago, my wife and I were talking, like, what are we gonna do? Esther, we gotta find someone for her, and it feels like nothing's, what's gonna be? I said to the girls, this niece, my brother-in-law, went to three rabbis this past summer. One was Rabbi Amar, the other one was Rabbi Penhasi, and the other one was Rabbi Feinstein. And he said, give a beracha for my daughter, he said. And all three rabbis said, we give you a beracha, that your daughter will find her nasib before Hanukkah. Girls and boys in this room, my niece got engaged last Tuesday. So I told it to these girls, and I said, that's how it works. You don't feel it coming, and then all of a sudden it happens. Fantastic, they appreciate it. Went to give the other speech, very nice. Last Shabbat, we had a retreat, like Rabbi Manso said for Kesha, we had 130 girls, just the girls retreat. It was unbelievably inspiring. And I said the story on Shabbat. Saturday night, I go up to my room at 1.30 in the morning, I see a voice note. A voice note from the father whose house I had given the speech in the Saturday night before. And he says, Rabbi, I just have to tell you something. There's an eighth grade Rebbe in Lakewood who this year, Rosh Hashanah, decided to do with his class, learn Shemirat HaLashon, the laws of Lashon Hara. And there's a program where you do it in the Zahut of somebody. This eighth grade rabbi did it in the Zahut that his niece get engaged. And he learned with his whole class in the Zahut that his niece get engaged. That eighth grade rabbi is my other brother-in-law. The niece he was praying for was the same Esther. And on the day he finished the book with his class, she got engaged. That's how a Jew sees the world. Hashem is here. Hashem is involved. But there's one more piece. Three boys in the class raised their hand and told the rabbi, Rabbi, we also learned for the zechut of someone to get engaged. And that someone got engaged to your niece. A Jew sees the world through these lights. A Jew has the brightness in his eyes and understands how we view the world. If your thinking is off, it's way worse and way deeper than if you just oversleep one day. That's why there's a law that the menorah cannot be higher than 20 amot. You know why higher than 20 amot? Because you can't see it. And you need to have your eyes on it. In fact, there's something unique. The Gemara, there's no Masechet about Hanukkah. There's a Masechet Sukkah, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Masechet Pesachim. There's no Masechet about Hanukkah. There's just three pages of Gemara in the middle of Masechet Shabbat. And in the middle of those three pages, right after the law about the Menorah not being able to be higher than 20 Amot, it says... A random little comment. 
Yosef HaTzadik was thrown into the bore, he was thrown into the ditch before he was sold. Says the Gemara, the Basuk says, Bahapur Rek and Bahamayin. The ditch was empty, it had no water. If it's empty, it obviously has no water, says the Gemara. What's it hinting to me by saying that it's empty, it had no water? Answers the Gemara, it was empty from water. But instead, the ditch had inside of it snakes and scorpions. And then the Gemara continues talking about Hanukkah. So all the commentaries ask, what is this doing here? Why in the middle of the laws of Hanukkah, in the middle of the three, only three pages that the whole Hanukkah gets, why do we have to read about Yosef and Tzadik in the ditch? Rav Moshe Feinstein has an incredible answer. He says, because it's teaching us a lesson. Those brothers dropped their brother into a ditch with snakes and scorpions. Let me tell you what snakes and scorpions is. It's automatic death. Yet, when they pulled him out, he was still alive. And the brothers didn't flinch. And they went ahead and sold him away. The message is, brothers of Yosef, how do you not have the vision to see that Hashem is doing miracles here? Hashem is keeping this boy alive. You go and you sell him away. How do you not see Hashem right here, right now? Our responsibility is to see Hashem in our every move, and our every day. Because when you live life seeing Hashem this way, then it changes how you think, and therefore it changes what you do. And the reason why this is so serious to the world we're living in, more than they're trying to tempt you, they're trying to mess with your thinking. Last week, one of my daughters had to remove a little pimple or something, so we need a dermatologist. My wife goes online to some NYU website. And you can't believe. First they ask the gender. You know how many options there are? Male, female, both, neither, you decide, we decide, wait till later. Then they have the options of then, how many options of your marriage orientation? I thought there's one option. No, there's like 15. Apparently today in America you can marry every person, every place, everything you want. Literally 15 options. And then there were pronouns. Them, they, him, her, us, we. I told my wife. What are they talking about? You know what they're talking about? They're playing with your mind. And they're making you think that there are options that aren't there. And if they mess with your thinking, it's more dangerous than if they tempt you. And it's actually hinted in the enemy we had. This is a cute little hinting in the enemy we had in the time of Hanukkah. The enemy is Yavan. How do you spell Yavan? Yud, Vav, Nun. Yud is like your brain, the small little brain. If they could impact your brain, then they could go down even longer and get to your heart, the Vav. And if they impact your heart, then the Nun, Sophie, they could impact your whole body. If they could warp your brain, they could completely grip you. How do we fight it? We fought it with the Hashmonaim, which are from the tribe of Levi. You know how Levi is spelled? Lamed Vav Yud. Lamed is the same as, it's long, but it's bent over, subservient to the ways of Hashem. If that's subservient, then that goes up to your heart, and goes up to the Yud, it goes up to your brain. Can I give you one last story, Rabbi? I have no idea my timetable. 
I used to know when the bell rang, when it was over, when I turned into a pumpkin. Now I don't know. <laughs> Give you one last little story. And again, this story is special to me because the man actually lives around the corner from Magandavi Yeshiva. He lives here in Bensonhurst. And he called me and he told me this story. His name is Nachum Lehman. He told me this story this week. This Nachum Lehman has, is a very special person. He helps people with like blind and extreme disabilities to be able to function. He's been doing it for 27 years. 23 of those years he's been doing it for free. Like there's someone who learns in a yeshiva around the corner called Besa Talmud. The person is blind. He's able to learn just because it's Nachum Lehman. So Nachum Lehman says, says, Rabbi, in the last few years, I've been involved in cases of people of ALS. ALS means all of a sudden the body function completely shuts down and they can't even speak. So the only way they could communicate is with their eyes, communicate with the computer and somehow through their eyes they could write words. Again, boys in the back. Somehow with their eyes they could write words. He says, normally if I have a patient, it takes me a week, maybe even a few hours Sometimes a few weeks. He says, this particular patient, a religious Jewish man who's 80 years old. Oh, that's that bell. It took, it took over two years for me to match his eyes. Which means for two years, this man was alive, had all his thoughts, but couldn't express himself at all. So his family is looking at their grandpa, their husband, their father sitting there. He can't move. He can't communicate, but he's thinking everything about reality. Two years, he says, finally, after I got through all of the different complications with his eyes, I was able to make his eyes be able to communicate. The family couldn't believe what they were seeing, that he was communicating on the computer. And there's a feature that computer can even start to speak and say the words that you program into it. He says, two months ago, this man was marrying off his son. And the the man decided that he wants to make a computerized speech, marrying a grandson, excuse me, a computerized speech for the grandson. And apparently the poskim say you're allowed to use this device even on Shabbat. So he was gonna make a speech and on the Shabbat Shabbat on Friday night, grandpa was gonna speak through the computer. It took him a month to prepare the words. And he prepared all the words. And then he called this Nachum Lehman man and said, I just needed some of the wife called and said, we just need to transfer from one computer to another. Nachum Lehman said, I'll come with a USB and I'll do it. He leaves his office, he's got all full of USBs on the counter. He picks up one, he runs, goes to the man's house, puts it in the computer, and he sees a file. And the file says on it, this man's name. He's like, why do I have a file with this man's name on it? I didn't put anything in yet. And then he plays the file and he realizes what happened. What had happened was that before, as this man was getting sick, he actually spoke real words into the computer with his actual voice. So this USB that he happened to pick up from dozens on the table had a file where it says, He says the names of every one of his children. He says the names of every one of his grandchildren. And he says, like famous Jewish phrases, this man Nachum Lehman says, we can make this into a little speech. 
And so sure enough, on Friday night, the grandpa has this computerized speech with the computer voice, probably sounded like Siri or something like that. And then makes a five, seven minute speech. And then in the whole room, all his family, all of a sudden they start to hear his voice. A voice they haven't heard in four or five years. He says, Mazel Tov to Moshe and to Miriam. Mazel Tov to their parents. In Vehagefen, in Vehagefen, which means this is a beautiful marriage. And he goes on and then all of a sudden they happen to have this also on the USB. He starts to sing. That Hashem's chesed never ends. The entire room was hysterical crying. The makeup was gone. You know, some person from the outside world might say, I don't know, why is this person even living? There's no quality of life. That's messed up thinking. That's not understanding how we live and why we live and what we're here for and what matters and what doesn't. But someone who can think straight realizes that an old man who can't even talk and he's in his 80s is a light to the world and a light to his children and a light to his grandchildren. Boys and girls, you will be tempted at different times and you'll have ups and downs. Hopefully much more ups and downs and hopefully in your future as you mature it will be only up. But you only have a chance to get there if your eyesight is clear and if your vision and your perspective is right. Because if you notice, the world is trying in every way possible to get you to think weird and think strange and think crazy things are normal and think things that make no sense make sense and make things that 20 years ago were ridiculous and now okay and even rather you do. Our job first and foremost, and it's what makes Magdalene David Yeshiva so special because in working with so many boys and girls in this community, I can't tell you how awesome it is to see a Magdalene David Yeshiva high school product. You know why? Because your vision is clear, because you're able to see, because you have the right perspective and you have the right mindset to life. Because on Hanukkah, what we celebrate is the candles in the window that train us how to see. Thank you. Hazaku Baruch. For a very, very inspiring and uh, very flavorful dirash by our great Rabbi Heber. Message is well taken want to make sure that I understood it correctly, although it's self-explanatory. The rabbi's message basically is that uh, the Greeks offered us darkness. And if you followed the Greek way, you'd end up in a very dark and a very low place, which is where the world is today, in Hoshech. And there's only one way to fight darkness, and that's with light. And the light only comes from the true source of light, which is the Torah, as the Pasuk says, the Torah or, and a little of Torah light dissipates a lot of the darkness of Yavan. And therefore we must commit ourselves to look at the world through the prism of Torah, so we th see things correctly. Those that put Torah on the side and use their own vision, I'm sorry to tell you, they end up in darkness and they end up in, God forbid, very, very low, degenerate places. So the rabbi's lesson is, is taken well. 
Therefore, we must recommit ourselves on Hanukkah to the study of Torah, to the ways of Torah, and to the philosophy and the ideology only of Torah. Rak Torah, with no additives, with no extras, with no uh, uh, diminishing Torah as is. And Be'ezat Hashem, if that's the case, our vision and our understanding of the world will be much more crisp and much more sharp. So, Hazak Uruk Rabbi, take the Musar, and uh, it's really incredible. Our next Sefer Torah that's going to address us, the living Sefer, is our beloved Rabbi El Nadav. Now, I must say, yeah, he deserves a standing ovation. I have a list, I have a list of uh, advantages Said, I have a list of advantages that came my way when I took the job at Mag and David. But uh, one of the greatest advantages is that I'm able to interact with Rabbi El Nadav. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I always knew the rabbi, but I knew him from far. But now I know him from close. And I see exactly what he's doing. And my assessment of this man is that he is pure, he is Leshem Shamayim. He has no agenda, he has no ulterior motives. He's driven by what his family has been driven by. His father, Allah Shalom, his grandfather that I was very close to. Uh, these people were community servants. They didn't ask for anything in return. They did it as a labor of love and they were motivated solely to benefit the other. And I'm very, very lucky that I have these interactions with the rabbi. And more lucky than I am is the students of the yeshiva that Baruch Hashem, we have a very, very pure and the Shem Shamayim man that is involved with the direct education and the benefit of the Midot of our children. So I'd like to ask Rabbi El Nadav to come and address the Kahal. Corey, can I get that re- introduction on a USB? Maybe they'll play that one day for me also. Where's Albert Salama? Don't ever ask me for anything ever again. I just want to share a story, if I may, and maybe an idea that we can tie it in to Inyana Diyama. I was actually teaching this to my 11th grade and I told them that I'm leaving part of the lesson out because we're going to save it for today. So 11th graders, you're responsible for this on your final. I'm just telling you from now. <clears throat> it was the summertime. It was the summertime, middle of the afternoon, and this little kid one time walks into his house seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, and he sees his mother sitting on the floor. She's crying, reading a book. Looks at his mother, Mom, what happened? You hurt yourself? You tripped, you fell, what's going on? And she says, no, today's a day known as Tisha B'Av. Says, Ma, what? Says, yeah, many years ago, close to 2,000 years ago, there was a Bet HaMikdash that was destroyed and we sit and commemorate it and mourn the destruction every single year on this day. He says, Ma, what are you talking about? Everything's wonderful, but mourning? 
I love it. I play outside with my friends. I'm going to camp. Okay, today's the day off from camp. What's so unique? So his mother says, come, I want to tell you a story. She says, there was once this man that was very, very wealthy. Him and his wife lived in a state with their one child, their son. And this son had everything. They were very wealthy. So this kid had a game room. This kid had a toy room. This kid had a horse in the backyard to ride on. This kid had a candy room. He had a kids in action in his house with a slide. Everything. Everything was there. And life was wonderful. And then one day, two men came. At a long meeting with the father. The father came out of the office with his eyes very, very red. And he turns to his wife and kids and says, I have to leave for some time. I'll be back. I'm not sure when, but I'll be back. And while I'm gone, you're going to have to find another place to live. You can't stay here. But know that I'll always be thinking of you. And it's going to be troubling, and so you're going to feel very alone. But know that I'm thinking about you from the far distance that I'm going to be. And the son's like, Dad, what do you mean? You're leaving me. How could you leave us? We have a beautiful family. What's going on? Well, he says to his son, I know. But listen, take this little box. Don't open it. But when you really miss me, you'll open it up. You'll be able to find me. You'll be able to connect to me. Kid doesn't know what this means. Seven-year-old boy. And he goes with his mother, father leaves, goes with his mother, and they have to find a new place to live. They didn't have much money, they couldn't take anything with them. And they find this dark, dingy, dirty basement to live in. And they resumed life. This kid, used to playing with toys, used to playing, had nothing. They went out into the streets, met some kids, roamed the streets, hoodlums, and they found fun. The fun they found was garbage dumps. And they used to go and take containers or sleds, slid off, slide off the roof and land in the dump. That was their fun. And they would try tricks of how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, the angle, the flip, the fast, the jump in the air, the whole thing. And this kid loved it. He comes home one day, dirty, disgusting, I had the best day, you know what we did? These people chased us, we ran around, we slid off the roof, we jumped into the garbage, we hid under the garbage, it was awesome, the thrill is unbelievable. And the mother starts crying. She says, Ma, what's the matter? I'm having a great time. She says, you don't even know what you're missing. You're happy with the garbage? That's what makes you happy? That's the thrill? You don't even remember what you had. You don't even remember the home. You don't even remember when daddy was here, the life that we had. And now you settle with garbage. You're just happy doing nothing, playing in the mud. I'm crying because you don't even know what you're missing. This mother back telling the son to the child saying, we're so happy with little nothing in this world. We don't even realize what it was. There was a Ben Mekdash, a place to connect to, a place to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a place to pray, a place of miracles, a place where people had health and wealth and everything was wonderful. And now you're settled, which is nonsense. This little kid's a little taken back. Says, I hear ma. 
And he sits down the rest of the Shabbat, doesn't want to go outside anymore, starts thinking. His mother turns to the little boy and says, come, I want to tell you the rest of the story. He says, Ma, I don't want to hear the rest of the story. I want to tell you the rest of the story. Is more to the story? I'm depressed already. She says, no, there's another part to the story. Let's go back to this kid that lived in the garbage. There's one day this kid wakes up and he sees his mother looking at a picture of their family. And she's all emotional. She's closing her eyes and she's swaying back and forth. And this little kid couldn't handle it anymore. His friends come pounding on the door and say, come, we're going to play, we're going to the dumpster. Nah, not today. Come? Nah, not today. Not coming. Day after day, they're knocking on the door. When are you coming out? I'm not going out. He's lying in bed and he's depressed in his little dark basement, little dungeon. And finally he remembers that last time I was with my father, he gave me a box and he told me that when I really, really missed him, and I was really, really looking for him. I should open that box. I forgot about that box. He starts rummaging through his stuff. He finds the box. He opens up the box. And what does he find inside? He finds a little shortwave radio. Opens up the box. Takes it all out. Lifts up the antennas. Starts playing with the dial. Starts talking into it. Daddy, do you hear me? Daddy, come in. Daddy. You said you're going to be there for me? Daddy, we miss you. Daddy, Daddy, please answer me. Daddy. Nothing. The friends come by, they see him talking to some radio, they're snickering at him. You think your father's listening? He's not listening. The kid doesn't give up. Daddy, please come in day after day. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, Father's listening. And he's hearing his kid call, like father couldn't answer. But he hears his kid crying, Daddy, please come in. Daddy, please come home. Daddy, we miss you. Please don't forget us. And this kid is relentless, and he keeps going. One night he falls asleep and cries himself to sleep, thinking about his father holding that family picture. The next morning, his mother bursts into his room. She said, Daddy's coming home today. Pack up, we're out of here. Well, today Daddy's coming. Let's get dressed, let's take our stuff, let's get out where we're going. We're going down to the docks, the ship is coming. Daddy's coming, Daddy's coming home. And they stood there, they watched the boat get closer and closer. It pulls up to the dock, the father comes running off. He looks at his wife, he looks at his child, grabs his child, and he says, I heard you for so long, and now I'm home, and I'm never leaving you. Come, let's go get a better estate. Let's go get a better place, and let's rebuild our family and get back more than what we've lost. We all know that during Hanukkah, we read a very important paragraph of B'meh Matityahu, the Abu Dharam writes that the Bimei Matityahu is referenced from a Perek in Sefer Yeshaya, Perek Samach Bet. 
And one of the Pesukim over there says something so interesting. Pasuk says, On the walls of Yerushalayim, Hashem has prepared watchmen, shomrim. Their job is to constantly remind HaKadosh Baruch Hu, don't forget Kalal Yisrael. Don't forget your children that are in Galut. That Adak writes over there, he says, who are the shomrim? Who are they? Who are these watchmen? And he brings down a few shatim on who they are. He says, we're talking about that the shomrim are the malachi asharet, the angels, they, were, they remind HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He says, the Yesh Mefashim, and some say that it's Avelet Zion, the mourners of Zion that sit and they mourn the destruction of Beit HaMikdash day and night. The Yesh Mefashim, he says, there are some that say, I'll call Yisrael Begalutam, every single Jew, every single one of us in this room, Shehem Shomrim, that we are the watchmen. Vetsofim Tamid, we await. We yearn. Binyan Yerushalayim. The rebuilding of Yerushalayim. Maskirim bonei Yerushalayim bayomu balayla. We mention the rebuilding of Yerushalayim day and night. Bitfilotohem and our prayers. And berchotohem and our berkat hamazon. Every moment that you see the words bonei Yerushalayim, at that moment, you are one of the shomrim. You are connecting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You're calling out and saying, Daddy, don't forget us. Daddy, bring us back. We're yearning to go back. That's our responsibility. We have this job to be a Shomer. We have a job to be calling on that shortwave radio saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, don't ever turn our back. He's back on us. Think about us. Think about all the children that are suffering. Think about all those that have gone through so much pain. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is listening. That day will come. We will hear The redemption is here. Daddy's coming back for us. He's taking us home, back to the Beit HaMikdash, back to that old life that we had. But we can't be that child that gets caught up playing the garbage, thinking that life is great. We have to stop every day. When you say, if a person says, should I wash on bread, or shayim is or not, take the opportunity to wash so you can say the words, be that shomer, connect the HaKadosh Baruch And maybe it's not a coincidence that exactly a week ago, Rabbi Kron stood here and he mentioned that the words of Mashiach connect directly to Hanukkah. He said the words Mashiach, Madlik, Shemona Yeme Hanukkah. This is the concept. Rabotai, ladies and gentlemen, I think this is our moment. We're winding down Hanukkah, a couple of days left. But realize the message. Every one of us have that opportunity multiple times a day to be one of the Shomir.
I'd say a riveting speech. Just to make sure that I understood it correctly, I think Rabbi El-Nadav is trying to tell us that we're lighting the menorah to commemorate the lighting of the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, which we don't have today. And Hanukkah is not only to remember the past, but it's also to look forward and to anticipate the rebuilding of the third Beit HaMikdash, which I have a hunch that all of us will be alive to witness it. That's how close it is. And the rabbi's purpose is that we must not give up and not become with a low self-esteem to think that we are just to play in the, the dumps of society. We have a Father in heaven and he hears our prayers and he sees our good deeds and there's gonna come a time where that short radio is going to give a return message and God is going to proclaim himself and the holiday of Hanukkah is connected to Mashiach. So therefore we have something to look forward to that like God made miracles for us by Yamimahim, He will make miracles for us by Zeman Hazer as well. That's a, that's a great speech. Our third speaker this morning, I'm just kidding, I'm gonna go right into my speech. The, um, hard to follow the past two, uh, I had to follow the past two rabbis. I would be wise just to say Shabbat Shalom, good luck, and to follow the three B's of speaking. And that is uh, be loud, be short, and be seated. However, I cannot uh, abdicate my responsibilities to the yeshiva. As you know, I am hired to give a siha on Fridays, and therefore I must fulfill my responsibility. A short lesson to our members that I think we could learn from Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not just to light a menorah, but there's lessons you're supposed to take from it. They're supposed to make us better people. What is the lesson that we could take from Hanukkah? Well, I'm sure you learned it with your teachers and your rabbanim. Hanukkah introduces to us different levels the way we can fulfill a mitzvah. The Gemara says that the entry level is you just have to light one candle every night. I don't care how many people you have in your family, just one ner, ner ishu beto, which really is very, very basic way of fulfilling the mitzvah. That means the whole holiday, you just need to light eight candles, one per night. You probably eat more jelly donuts than lighting candles, according to that opinion. But then the Gemara introduces a better way of doing the mitzvah, and that's called mahadrin. And then they even say, a better way to do the mitzvah, they call that mahadrin, mena mahadrin, beautiful. You don't find this by other mitzvot. By other mitzvot they tell you, this is the way you do the mitzvah, you do it, you fulfill it. You don't do it, you didn't fulfill it. All of a sudden on Hanukkah they introduce us a choice way, a better way, an extra way, a way that's more, that's beyond the, the call of duty. And the question is why? I want to tell you a law. You might be surprised by it, because I was when I heard it for the first time, when I was probably your age. Everybody makes a big deal. They found the Pach Shemin, and it was pure, had the seal of the Kohen Gadol, and because they found the pure oil, they were allowed to light the menorah. 
But I have to be honest with you that the halakha says that in a case where you have no pure oil and there's no pure oil available, you're allowed to use impure oil. So what's the big deal? They didn't need this pach shemen. They could have lit the menorah anyway. Halakha says if there's no oil available, you can still light the menorah. So why we say, oh, it's a good thing they found the pach shemen. And if they didn't, they could have still lit the menorah. So why is it such a big miracle that they found the pach shemen? You know what the explanation is? Explanation is that those kohanim and the hashmonaim and those sadikim, although they didn't need to use pure oil, but they did something more than they were obligated. They went the extra mile. They said, we know we can get away with impure oil, but we want to be mehadir. We want to use kosher oil. And therefore, since they were mehadrin, they did something more than they had to do. So we emulate the hashmonaim by doing more. We're not satisfied with the minimum. To me, this is a lesson in life. There are certain people that I refer to as nine to five people. Nine to five means they get to work exactly on time, nine o'clock, not a minute early. They should come a minute early. And they leave exactly at five o'clock. When they punch out on their card, it says five, zero, 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 zero. God forbid they should stay an extra minute. Those are people that want to get away with the bare minimum of life. Let me tell you something about those people that are just looking to get by and they don't strive to excel. They don't have desire to be better and to do more. Those people usually fail in life. Usually they're not successful. I had a friend in Magan David, I won't say his name. Maybe after you ask me, I'll tell you privately. Seventh grade, Magan David, Rabbi Bitton's class, Allah Shalom. Rabbi Bitton's picture's hanging in the lobby. His boys, Baruch Hashem, they didn't be well teaching these people. That's right, he deserves it. He deserves it. So anyway, I had Rabbi Bitton's father as a teacher in Magan David in seventh grade, long time ago. And he once gave the class a composition that we had to write, 500 words. And there was a kid in the yeshiva and he writes exactly 500 words. He actually numbered the words. And the composition ends mid-sentence. So Rabbi Bitton looks and says, this last sentence makes no sense. It has a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. So the guy tells the rabbi, I wrote 500 words. You only said to write 500 words. So he said, what, what would it hurt you if you would have written 502 words and finished the sentence? But that's all you asked me to do. I cannot tell you what Rabbi Bitton did to that kid. He's still feeling the consequences of that bad decision, I think, till today. But I have to tell you something about that kid. He was told to do 500. He couldn't do even one more word. And that's the way he lived with his wife, serving his wife the bare minimum. That's the way he's with his children. That's the way he's in his office. And I'm sorry to tell you, that's the way he's in his religion as well. What's the halakha? What's the cheapest itrog I could buy? What's the cheapest way to expend the mitzvah? What's the easiest way just to get a passing grade? 65. No desire to get 100. For what purpose? I passed. Bare minimum. The lesson of Hanukkah is 
It's not enough to do mitzvot. But you should try to do the mitzvot in a better way. And that attitude should be in life. It should be not only in religion, but it should be a way of life in general. When you're doing something, don't just try to pass and get by. You should try to impress and do things in an excellent way to the best of your ability. And don't fall into the trap and say, but I don't have to, it's not my responsibility. You're right. Those that subscribe to that philosophy usually don't get too far in life. It's the people that come early to work and the people that stay late. It's the people that do a little extra and do a little more. Those are the ones you usually find on the Forbes 500. And those, which I'm not coming to talk about that list, those are the lists that you find of the Sadiqim and the Hasidim. The Sadiq and the Hasid are those that extended themselves a drop more than the next person and did a little extra. They weren't satisfied with a 65 passing. They shot for 100 and they even shot for extra credit. I was once invited, a guy was building a house in deal, and he asked me to come help him with mezuzot. So I went to the guy's house and I opened one of the doors and I felt the, the doorknob, it was a brass doorknob, it was a solid piece of metal. So I turned to him, I said, this is a solid piece of good feeling. He says, uh, 400 bucks. 400 bucks for a doorknob? Wow, where do you even find such things? And he has 50 of them. I said, that's impressive. I said, anyway, let's get down to the mezuzot. I said, I have beautiful mezuzot, they're $100 a piece. He says, $100 a piece? Can't you get one for 25 bucks? And I told him, when it comes to your doorknob, did you ask for a discount? He says, as a matter of fact, they showed me a $200 doorknob and I said, do you have something better? So why when it comes to your business, you only do things the best, and when it comes to God's business, you're nickel and diming the sofer, give me a cheaper one, give me a, a one that's less, uh, less expensive. Your attitude should be consistent, that if you demand excellence in your personal life, and you want the best food, and you want to go to the best places, and you want to have the best of life, well, your religion should not be second level. Your religion should have that same standard. And as a matter of fact, it wouldn't bother me if you lowered your physical standard, but kept your religious standards above the call. And I conclude with a blessing, and it's to your advantage. Everybody's asking God for more. We have a list of things that we're praying for. We need a lot of stuff. And we want the blessings of God to be in abundance. But how do we get God to give us a great amount, more than we ask for? How do we get God to be generous with us? To not only provide what we requested, but to give us the extras that we didn't request. And God says, if you give me more, I'll mirror your actions and give you more as well. But if you give me the bare minimum, you'll get credit. But that's the way I behave with you. You'll get exactly what you need and not a drop more. So therefore, the blessings on Hanukkah, when you light the menorah tonight, you only have to light one candle, but you're lighting six. And on the last night, you're lighting eight. That's 800% more than you have to. 
And God tells the angels, look at my children. They could have got away with one. And they're lighting eight. Give me back their file. Instead of giving them one blessing, we're going to multiply it by 800%. The beracha of mourness from God doesn't start in heaven. It starts with an attitude on earth of being mehaderim. Not only on Hanukkah, but this is an attitude that you must have for the entire year and throughout your entire life. It is my blessing that in the merit that we serve God and we live a life, that we're willing to go the extra mile and do a little more, even though we're not obligated, God will return in kind and give us the blessings of mourness and blessings, Be'azat Hashem, to be Beracha Adelidai Amen Tehira Torah.